At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey folks, before we start really exciting news, we now have CME available from ACRAC. That's right. You can get... AMA PRA Category 1 credit for listening to ACRAC and then filling out just a quick survey question that will take you not more than about 30 seconds to a minute. Those links are at the website, ACRAC.com. In each uh, show notes, you can see right under the description, there will be a bold CME with a link. You click on that link. It's a small cost for each credit, much less than you would pay to go to a conference or get the 20 or 30 or 40 credits that you need for the year. You can do them one at a time for each episode that you listen to and get a full credit for just listening to an ACRAC episode and then filling out this quick question. This is powered by CMEify. It's using AI technology to bring the right education to the right place at the right time, and it really is great. You can do this in just a minute or less and get credit. So if you are out there looking for a way to get PRA Category 1 credit for your CME requirements, or if you're already getting it somewhere but you're already listening to ACRAC anyway and you'd like to get it from this, now you can. Every episode can get you a credit, so you can get more than 200 credits from ACRAC episodes by listening and then clicking on that link on the website at ACRAC.com. All right, now on with the show. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I've got a couple quick announcements, and then I will tell you about our fantastic show today. So first, I want to put a plug in for one of our great colleagues down at All Children's Hospital in Florida, Allison Fernandez. She's done some incredible work putting together some videos interviewing women of impact in anesthesiology. They're really interesting. They're pretty concise. You can watch them very quickly. She's interviewed Dr. Colleen Cook, our former chair here, who's now the dean at University of Florida, Mary Dale Peterson, and many others. So check out that women of, of impact in anesthesiology videos. We'll put links in the show notes. And then I also want to make an announcement I'm very excited about, which is to say that very soon we will be offering CME through ACRAC. And this is going to be through a a company called CMEFI. You'll see uh, some information on the website, and I'll also make more announcements soon. It's not up yet, but it will be soon. And those of you who are practicing physicians who want to get CME will be able to do that through uh, listening to ACRAC and then just doing a very quick little summary after that. All right. So more to come on that. Now I want to tell you that we have a truly fantastic show for you today, and I'm excited to tell you that I have with me Dr. Mark Newman, who is an associate professor of anesthesiology at University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine and does some really exciting research. We're going to talk about a huge paper that he published in the New England Journal today, and we'll get to that in a second, but Mark, welcome to the show. 
Thank you, Jed. It's wonderful to be here. So, Mark, we're going to talk about the Regain trial, which, uh, as I said, was published in the New England Journal on October 9th. Uh, really a huge achievement, and um, I can't even imagine the amount of work that went into that, and, and we're going to talk about that. But first, just give us a little bit of background for folks who are listening about you, where you come from, and what your uh, career looks like at this point. Thank you. Yes. Um, well, uh, I'm an anesthesiologist. I work in the operating room here at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania and Penn Presbyterian Medical Center. Um, I finished my training in anesthesiology in 2008. Um, I was a resident at Brigham and Women's Hospital. And I came to Penn uh, that year to do a post-residency research training program. Uh, at the time, it was called the Robert Wood Johnson Clinical Scholars Program. It's, it's changed its name to the National Clinician Scholars Program. It was a training program that taught me how to do research, and it was really amazing investment uh, that I was able to make in, in myself in terms of learning how to do this type of work. Uh, while I was there, I, I learned that um, older adults who undergo surgery um, are a population that, that, that really is, is in need of, of, of great research and advocates to, to help improve outcomes. And uh, over the past uh, uh, 12 or so years, since I started down that path, I've worked on a variety of different studies trying to understand what the outcomes are of older adults who have surgery and things we can do to help improve those outcomes. In particular, I focused on people who've had hip fractures because it's a big population of patients and um, outcomes after hip fracture can be quite severe and lead to substantial morbidity, mortality, and losses of independence. Yeah, that's fantastic, Mark. And, and you're doing amazing work. So, you know, you've clearly had some great success relatively early in your career, which is great and well-deserved. Say a few words to folks out there who may be residents right now or fellows or even young faculty who are thinking, you know, man, I would love to get more involved in research or have success like Mark has had. Any words of advice you'd give to them? Well, you know, I think the the most important thing I did in, in getting started was to take uh, some, some serious time to dedicate to learning how to be a researcher. For me, that was not just about learning specific research methods like biostatistics or epidemiology, but going through the process of working with mentors to learn how to ask good questions that could be um, uh, studied over years and that could be rich, rich questions to work in. For me, taking time to do a fellowship in research was a really transformative moment. In, in being an anesthesiologist, in, in many ways, I think of my, my research career as sort of the, the specialty I did as a fellowship. And I really think more and more to do high-impact research or research that can speak to multiple audiences, um, it's, it's something that, that benefits one to be able to do that extra training and take that time. Again, it's not just about the methods, although that is important. What it's really about is learning how to ask your own questions and ask questions that are going to speak to policy and practice in a meaningful way. The other piece, uh, which is sort of implicit in that, is uh, being able to find great mentors. Um, and, and my mentorship has come from all different kinds of places within anesthesiology, outside of anesthesiology, outside of medicine. Um, and having mentors who can push you uh, and help you set goals that are ambitious and go kind of to the next step, uh, at least for me, has been really critical in, in my development. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah, you know, two things uh, that you said that I, I've heard from many others. One is certainly the mentorship piece, and, and that's so key no matter what you want to do. 
And the other is this getting that extra training. I think a lot of people shy away from that. Maybe they think, you know, I just want to get out there and work or dedicate all my time to, you know, work and making money or, or you know, starting this job. But uh, from if, when you talk to people who've had success, so many of them have done some, whether it's a master's in, in you know, some sort of um, research uh, or clinical science or whether it's a PhD or whether it's a fellowship type program. Maybe say just a few words. What does a fellowship in research look like? Is it a multi-year thing? Do you work part-time while you do that? What does that look like? Yeah, I, I think, and, and first of all, I'd say, I, I do want to speak to the comment you made about getting out and making money because that's a real, that's real, right? And um, I, to, be, to be completely, you know, upfront about it, you know, I came into this from a certain position of privilege so that it wasn't a hardship for me to take those two years. They are foregone income in a way, right, that you might not get back as an anesthesia trainee when you look at what are you going to earn. So I have to be, you know, uh, genuine about the fact that this trade-off, you know, might mean different things for different people. And there's no right or wrong, right? These are all individual decisions, um, that said, there are things that can sort of soften that financial blow. Uh, there are loan repayment program. There's a loan repayment program from the NIH, which has been very important for a lot of people that, that, that can help defray loans and things like that, or, you know, pay off loans. Um, in terms of the practicality of doing a research fellowship, for me, it was funded through a private foundation, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Um, there are also postgraduate research training programs through the NIH, and these sometimes are called T32 programs. These NIH grants all have numbers and letters that go with them. These T32 programs can fund you for two to three years after residency. And, and really, what? and they're at specific hospitals. Johns Hopkins has one. Penn has one. There are lots around. Basically, the concept is in the same way as you would do a fellowship to train in cardiac anesthesiology or pediatric anesthesiology, you're doing a fellowship to train in in research. And it's a time where your primary activity is learning about research and doing research. For me, I kept a clinical presence and 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 that's pretty typical in these fellowships, which was about 20% of professional effort was clinical. But the main reason I was coming to work was to learn how to be a researcher. And at the end of that, I came on to faculty. And, 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 you know, for me, to be able to do the type of research we've been doing, it, it never would have been possible if I hadn't taken that dedicated time. Again, not because of learning the methods as much as being forced to sort of become a graduate student and think through, okay, what, is our, what are our big questions to ask? Yeah. All right. Great. Thank you, Mark. So let's turn to the Regain trial again. Congratulations on that monumental achievement. Uh, you know, I want to talk about the actual outcomes, but first, when you just think about this, the undertaking itself, uh, you know, and running a trial across multiple institutions in two different countries, tell me a little about how you came about that. I mean, you, you probably didn't get, you know, uh, specific training during that fellowship and how to run this kind of a massive trial. So how did you make that jump and, and how you just say a few words about the process itself? Yeah, you know, so Regain, I'll back, I'll back it up a little bit and just give you some insight into sort of the, the way this all played out. Regain was sort of born out of an act of desperation on my part. I had come to Penn, at, you know, done my research training, and I, I came on faculty. And the track of, that I'm on at Penn requires that you get competitive grants to basically functionally stay here. You know, it's an upper out institution. So there was a 
a sense that, you know, to, to keep doing my job, I needed to get funded. And my first grant was on a completely different topic. It was to, the, to, it was to fair and, and it didn't do very well. It didn't get funded. The reviews were not good. And um, I backed up and I said, what's something that I can focus on that's going to matter to anesthesiologists and the public? And I, I and it was in 2010, I, I started to look into this question of anesthesia technique and hip fracture. Our first two studies that we did on it, which eventually were funded by FAIR, and I'm very grateful for that, um, used retrospective methods. They looked backwards. Um, and, and when we got those done, we were very proud of them. But my mentors pushed me and said, you know, can you go further? Can you produce a more definitive study to go deeper on this question? And that's when we started to look into doing Regain. I hadn't done a lot of trials before that. I really didn't know a ton about doing trials. And a lot of it was learning by doing. But I relied on a lot of great advice I got from people once we, when we put the grant in and when we eventually got it on how to set the thing up. What I would say, some of the best advice I got was from people who'd done big trials before, as well as people who weren't even in medicine. Uh, one of the most impactful conversations I had was with a friend of mine who's been a very successful small business owner. And when I told him about Regain and what we were doing, this is before we got started, he immediately said, oh, you're running a franchise business. You know, you are developing a model that you're pushing out to all these different sites and asking them to run it really well. And the first thing he said when he recognized that sort of franchise concept was, you need your sites more than they need you. And it was great advice because running a big multi-center trial really is that type of experience where it's the sites that do the work. And my job as PI is to give them a vision for what is success and motivate them through all different means. And most of them are non-financial means calling people on the phone, sending emails, nudging, creating a study that they can succeed at to get them to help us all move towards the goal together. Um, so those are a couple of the orientations uh, that I've had going through it. And I, I could go, we could, we could talk for an hour about things I've learned about running big trials from this, but those are a couple of the high points. Yeah. Thanks, Mark. And I love that franchise uh, example. Uh, you know, that makes a ton of sense that you're really, you're really relying on them just as, you know, corporate McDonald's relies on the people on the ground in each uh, in each store, right, in each restaurant, that you really have to uh, trust them, motivate them, make them feel invested in the process. So I love that as, a, as an analogy. So let's turn to the trial itself. What are the two major options for anesthesia for hip surgery? Well, almost everybody who has hip fracture surgery gets either spinal anesthesia, a single shot spinal, um, or general anesthesia, either with an endotracheal tube or a laryngeal mask airway. Um, on top of that, you know, recommendations are that people should get peripheral nerve blocks for pain control, usually before surgery. Um, although those are actually pretty uncommon in U.S. practice, as far as we can tell, unfortunately. And that's another thing that we're very, you know, focused on trying to improve over time. But those are the basic anesthetic options. Okay. Now there must have been equipoise before your trial or you wouldn't have been able to do it. So they both were considered reasonable options. Now, was there any kind of feeling in either the literature or, or in your own practice of what was one maybe better? You, did you go in with a hypothesis that one was going to be better than the other? Yeah, our hypothesis was that spinal would be better on main outcomes that we looked at. You know, that hypothesis was supported by, you know, sort of historical teaching that, that traditionally we have taught that spinal is in some ways kind of a gentler anesthetic, at least it seems. 
Our preliminary work, which was the retrospective data, looking back, did suggest that people who received spinal seemed to have better outcomes. Um, we had slightly different findings across the two studies we did. One was in 2012 in Cayman Anesthesiology. The other was 2014 in JAMA. But the net you know, sort of takeaway was that it seemed like spinal was better. There were some other findings like that in retrospective studies. Some retrospective studies didn't confirm that. And then there were a number of trials, which were quite old and most of them quite small, that, again, made it look like spinal might have been better, but didn't really have enough information to be definitive. And, and again, were, were quite old. Um, so that was the initial thinking. But again, all those retrospective studies we'd done were potentially confounded by selection bias. And that was one of the things that really pushed us to want to do a more definitive trial. Yeah, great. And, you know, I think certainly my own learning through residency was that, you know, probably spinal is better. So I think that 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 is a belief that was out there. And yet you found ultimately that there was no significant difference between spinal and general anesthesia for hip surgery, which, you know, was surprising to me when I saw your study. It may have been surprising to you. It certainly was not your hypothesis. And and I bet for folks out there is somewhat surprising. Any thoughts on why there was no difference? Yeah, and I'll just echo, I was surprised by the findings as well. Um, you know, we looked at a main outcome of recovery of walking or death. It was a composite outcome at 60 days, which we collected by telephone uh, from, from the patients who had enrolled. We also looked at length of stay, delirium during hospitalization, and then we looked separately at 60-day mortality and 60-day walking. And all of those were, were very similar across groups. I should mention that when we looked at in-hospital complications, we did find higher rates of some important complications for people who'd gotten general versus spinal, although they were very small numbers uh, and they were mostly exploratory findings. I think the takeaway that I had from, you know, from, from our results was that it did seem like there potentially could have been some differences in the very short term between spinal anesthesia and general anesthesia, but by 60 days, uh, none of these things really uh, shown through as, as, as meaningful differences. It was also surprising to find that there was no difference in delirium. And then length of stay, I would say, was also quite surprising, given that we did find some differences or did note some differences in exploratory analyses in these complications. They didn't seem to rise to the level of altering people's time to discharge. So, you know, I think the takeaway was that whatever effects we might be seeing with spinal versus general we're not sort of durable enough to change outcomes, either in terms of hospital utilization or, or where people ended up at 60 days. Yeah, the, the real shocker for me is the delirium, as you kind of highlighted too, right? You would think that that would be a factor. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess one thought is potentially uh, that folks having spinals are usually also getting sedation during the spinal. And I, I wonder, and I don't know if you have any thoughts on is there any aspect of this that is, you know, people getting maybe deeper sedation during their spinal than they need to that is a, approximating general anesthesia, though they're still breathing, they're still pretty deeply sedated. Is that a factor? Stay with us. We'll be back with Mark's answer to that question in just a sec. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. 
Parker, engineering your success. You know, we worked really hard to, um, to, to, to establish uh, standards in our trial for spinal sedation. One thing that was reassuring that we learned in the middle of the trial uh, was that there was an important trial that was done at Johns Hopkins by Fritz Sieber at Bayview and his team. And he was a member of our study team as well. And he randomized people to get deeper versus lighter sedation when they had spinal anesthesia for hip fracture surgery and found that there was no difference in the main results in terms of delirium according to sedation depth. So that was a reassuring finding for us. Given the scope of our trial and the size and the number of sites, there was only so much we could do to dial in that level of sedation across the sites and, and the sedation monitoring. As I mentioned, you know, our model is highly disseminated, which we did really to try and get a big enough sample to look at this meaningful outcome. It's hard in that framework to reach into every OR and, you know, precisely dial in what the sedation is going to be. But we gave people goals. Our goal was that most patients, that we asked for them to keep patients who had spinal arousable to tactile stimulus or voice. And we asked them to check in and document the sedation level. And, and we found that about 85% of the patients in the study had sedation within target as far as the one, in terms of the ones that we had data on. So that was reassuring to us. It, it didn't, as far as we could tell from the data, seem like these folks were getting effectively general anesthesia on top of spinal, although, you know, our ability to say that is, is, is to some extent limited by the data we were able to collect. Um, I think the question of spinal anesthesia without sedation uh, is, is, is an interesting one that, that people have brought up in discussions. It's something the literature doesn't really speak to. You know, there haven't been trials of this at the same level of, as others. I think it would be challenging to really understand um, because, after all, delivering at least some sedation intraoperatively for people who are getting spinal anesthesia is pretty standard care in the United States and many other places. Um, we interviewed a lot of people and, 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 and screened a large number of people to be in our trial, and many patients said no. Uh, oftentimes, they said no because they had concerns about getting spinal anesthesia, and it's it's one of those things that I'm sure, you know, in many people's practices, when you describe spinal anesthesia to patients, the concern about being completely unsedated and awake in the, in the operating room is is uh, is is a major concern for many patients. So it's it's challenging to see exactly how that would be studied well, um, although I think it's a, a theory that somebody could float an hypothesis that could be tested uh, if somebody was willing to go try to do that. Yeah, it's interesting because the one model obviously is OB patients, right? So laboring women get spinals for C-sections without any sedation all the time, but you could never compare them to the patients having hip surgery because we're talking about young, healthy women versus older, potentially less healthy adults. So that that's not helpful, but it, it would be interesting. I, I always do wonder that if if no sedation um, would be would be helpful at all. But I think you're right. There are not a lot of people who want to be fully awake listening to their own hip being operated on. It's hard to say. I mean, the other piece is almost a sort of, you know, to deliver humane care. Remember, with spinal anesthesia for hip fracture patients, you have to position somebody typically from supine to lateral to place the spinal, and they have an unfixed fracture. And that hurts a lot. And so yeah. even simply to place the spinal 
it's typically required to have some degree of sedation. I and mean, some, some folks might say that it's possible to do that with no sedation if you do a fascia iliaca block and the block works great. But functionally speaking, just to allow somebody to place a spinal on a patient and not have them be in extreme distress, you need at least something. And so, um, so you know, hip fracture is a distinct context. And, and, and the phenomenon of delirium in hip fracture is a distinct phenomenon. You know, we don't have delirium in, 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 in other populations, uh, even elective joint replacement that approximates the numbers we see in hip fracture. It's much, much higher. So I would say that this, you know, it's, it's hard to compare and contrast across bins. And, and, you know, I think, like I said, I think it's a theory one could explore, um, but, but I don't think it's anything that the data speak to right now. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, so let me ask you, you did this huge trial, you know, obviously you can never study everything and then you find out your results and maybe that brings up new questions. Is there anything kind of lingering questions in your mind you don't think got answered or, you know, anything that if you could go back and, and change the trial, you would change? Um, that's a great question. I think there are, there are a few things that, that come to mind. Uh, one is that, as I mentioned before, we approached a number of patients. We screened 22,000 patients overall wow. to get to our 1,600. Many of those patients were excluded based on things like anticoagulation, like they had a strong contraindication to a spinal. But a number of them declined because they, they, they didn't want to participate in the trial. They had a preference for one or another type of anesthesia. And there was a certain number of cases where the physicians decided that the patient was, a, was, was not appropriate. It would have been great if we had been able to arrange it to have a separate registry study where we could have followed those patients who would have otherwise been eligible but didn't enroll to see what kind of anesthesia they got and what their outcomes were like. That would tell us a lot about the selection process into the trial, help us get a better sense of the generalizability of our results, and also give us information on how care is being delivered across all these different hospitals. The other thing I would have loved to have been able to do is, is look more deeply into some of these high-risk subgroups of hip fracture patients. One really interesting finding we had is that there was a, a non-significant difference in um, rates of the primary outcome for folks who had pulmonary disease and cardiac disease. There was a numerical difference. It didn't meet statistical significance. We had fairly small numbers there, again, to some degree based on who ended up enrolling in the trial. It would be, you know, uh, really interesting to be able to see larger subgroup analyses. And that's something that we're going to hopefully be able to do in the future uh, with a, a partnership we've developed through investigators in Germany who are running an aligned trial called IHOPE, which uses all the same intervention protocols and the same outcome definitions as Regain did. So our hope is that once this other IHOPE study is done, which will be a thousand patient trial, We'll eventually be able to pool the data and get a little more insight into some of those subgroups. Nice. Well, that'll be great. And uh, as you say, maybe you'll find um, some trends in there that'll be useful. Um, so, will there be a regain too? Uh, and if so, what what will you look at? Um, uh, to be determined. Uh, but you know, really, my hope for this was that this would be. Um, you know, my hope in doing regain is not. Not, not, were, were many things, but one big thing I hoped is that it would create, uh, some opportunities and maybe help some people envision doing bigger, more ambitious studies in anesthesiology. We've had lots of great large scale studies, uh, done in our field. 
but in the United States in particular, pragmatic trials, trials that compare standard care interventions in anesthesiology are not as common as I think they could be. And I think we have a lot of areas of need where we could be addressing, uh, addressing real questions of practice. My hope in Regain is that one of the things that comes of it is that people can look at it and see that it's possible to do work at this scale. It's possible to do work that looks at important end outcomes that are chosen by patients uh, and to collaborate across hospitals that can be very different in terms of how they're set up and how they practice. I'm involved in a great project that was just funded by the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, the same group that funded our trial called the THRIVE trial, which was led by Michael Avedon at Washington University in St. Louis and Sachin Ketterpal at University of Michigan. And that'll be comparing intravenous versus inhaled anesthetics for in a large pragmatic trial. And it's been a real honor to be part of that as well. So I'm excited to see that Regain is helping encourage others and, and, and inform other trials uh, and hopefully there'll be more and more to come over time. Yeah, I hope so too. So if, if the NIH gave you a blank check, they said, Mark, here you go, you fill in the number. Uh, you could have all the funding you wanted. Uh, would, you, would, you do, would you look at anything differently if you had had that for this trial? Would you, you know, was there anything that limited you funding-wise? I'm sure there always is, but anything major that you would do with that money? You know, it's a great question, Jed, and sort of going back to those topics that we talked about, having a registry or having more subgroups, you know, those are things that maybe to some degree could have been solved with more funds. The reality is, um, you know, we had generous funding for this, this, this uh, trial. We had, we had enough money to, we had all the money we needed to get it done, really. I think that many of the challenges we ran into were sort of non-financial. The truth is doing research in the context of clinical practice, especially in a practice like anesthesiology, which is inherently kind of chaotic, it's, it's a challenging thing. And there are a lot of logistical challenges and just practical challenges on the ground um, that, that make it hard to get work like this done. So um, in some ways, I would say the biggest types of problems that we encountered are the things that I most wanted to address are not necessarily things that one can solve through money. Uh, one good example is selective enrollment into the trial, right? You know, we had, like I said, 22,000 patients screened. And many of them were ruled out based on actual contraindications, but a lot of them had to do with patients choosing their anesthesia type and deciding not to be in the trial, and to some degree, clinicians also choosing. Getting closer to, you know, enrollment rates that are, you know, sort of, you know, that, that, that don't involve a lot of selection is something that I think would be wonderful to be able to improve the insights we get from a trial like this. But that's not something that you can really solve through money, right? That's having to do with what people's preferences are, what their priorities are, what the perceptions of different types of anesthesia is, and what clinicians' preferences and beliefs are. And those are things that, that, are, that are complexities of trials that are just part of doing this type of work. Yeah. Well, great, Mark. Let me ask you, you know, if my 85-year-old father, you know, breaks his hip tomorrow, do you think I can confidently say it, you know, either way, guys, you know, do the general, do the spinal, uh, it, it's the outcomes are going to be the same. Do we feel like we're there? I would say it probably depends. Um, you know, I think if you look at our trial and you look at the types of patients that we enrolled into the trial, if you would say that this individual, your grandfather was similar to the folks that were in our trial, 
it's probably a pretty safe thing to say, look, you can choose and, and, and tell us what your preferences are. Right. And, and, and knowing that there's a possibility that we can't rule out that there could be short term differences in the long run. Our best guess is you're going to have similar outcomes. I think that's a reasonable statement to make. I think it's harder to say if it's somebody who has serious comorbidities or things that physiologically might tilt you one way or another. I'll give you a good example. If you encounter a patient in the pre-op area who has an active pneumonia but still needs to go to the operating room to fix their hip and they're on oxygen, right? I don't know if our trial really speaks directly to that patient. After all, there were only so many of those folks that were in the trial. And there, I think it's really critical that anesthesiologists and other care providers continue to use, you know, good clinical judgment at the bedside. Um, but I would say for folks who look like the people in our trial, um, it's a reasonable thing to say that they can make choices on their own based on their priorities with the comfort of knowing that their outcomes at 60 days uh, are, 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 may not be likely to be affected by the anesthesia choice. Yeah. Well, great. I think that's probably comforting to a lot of people. Mark, this has been fantastic. I want to give you a chance. If there's anything you think we didn't cover uh, about the trial or anything else that you want to um, add before we move on? No, I think, you know, really the, the one thing that I would like to say is that, that a couple of questions have come up over time over how we picked our outcomes. And, um, you know, for an anesthesia trial, it's, it's not, um, you know, we, we've, 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 had to address some questions in, you know, in, in different meetings in the public about whether or not 60A outcomes and 60A walking outcomes was the right outcome. So I wanted to just share a little bit of my thoughts on how we got there. Yeah, you know, really, this uh, when we designed the trial, we spoke to a lot of patients about what was important to them after hip fracture, and recovery of walking was the thing that came through over and over again. We had a great patient partner organization, the Center for Advocacy for the Rights and Interests of the Elderly, which is here in Philadelphia. And they worked with us to, to speak with patient groups and engage patients as members of our team. And that outcome was something that we discovered was really prioritized by patients. And that's why we chose to focus on walking. We wanted to be able to capture short-term outcomes, as is maybe a little more conventional anesthesia studies. And, and we did that. Uh, but, but the overall goal was to really focus on things that mattered to patients. And so we're really proud to be able to deliver a study that had those types of outcomes in, in a really prominent place. Awesome. Well, Mark, thank you for the work you did. Uh, again, monumental undertaking and uh, really um, exciting to have that information. Let's turn to the uh, portion of our podcast where we make random recommendations. Anything you'd like to share with the audience, something they can check out? Um, one thing I did uh, uh, this summer, um, I guess in celebration of Regain wrapping up, uh, was I finally got around to reading uh, Moby Dick uh, by Herman Melville. And uh, I've been intimidated by the book. It's a big book and it's, it's pretty complicated. Uh, but I have to say, I, I, was, I really enjoyed it. And I, I have to give it a, a high rating. I'd say Moby Dick lives up to the hype. I encourage anybody who has an interest in great literature, whales, uh, seeking big goals, uh, monomaniacal focus on success. Uh, anybody who's interested in those kinds of things will hopefully enjoy it. It's a, it's a really, it's a really special book. That's awesome, Mark. Thanks. Uh, I will admit I've never read it, but, um, your, uh, recommendation makes me want to put it on the list. Um, 
I uh, will just further my shout out for Alison Fernandez's series and uh, Women of Impact in Anesthesiology that I mentioned up front. And I'll recommend one specifically. I mean, they're all great, but um, it really was a lot of fun to see her interview Dr. Colleen Cook, partly because, of course, I know Colleen. She was the chair here for seven years. But also, she really talks eloquently about the balance of figuring out how to build her career while still being a parent to her children and figuring out that balance and where to think about it, what, you know, her involvement in research, her involvement in building her career uh, administratively, the extra degree she did and how they played in. And uh, and all this happens in a short, uh, you know, a less than 15 minute um, interview. So Allison does a great job and Colleen's an incredible person. So really worth checking that out. All right, Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. My pleasure, Jed. Thanks so much for having me. All right. That was fantastic. Hopefully you enjoyed that. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, com, where you can leave a comment. We can all learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Jay Walpaw, and we're at ACRAC Podcast. You can also join the ACRAC Facebook group. We are on Instagram, and we are on Reddit. Please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you are interested in supporting the making of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. And we really appreciate any donations or pledges that you make. You can make individual donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking up Jay Wolpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who've already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our amazing ACRAC team. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Ryan Okonski is our social media manager. And Drs. April Liu and Kimia Kashkuli are our production assistants. We really appreciate them and all that they do. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right. That is it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. Mark Newman, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C., at Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. 
Parker, engineering your success.